All right, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7. As we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, and with how big of a Sunday and with the kids in here, I have promised to do my best to be efficient. So whatever happens, know that yes, I do know, and yes, I am trying, okay? Verse 24, chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Lord, help us receive your word and love what we receive and live that out in obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with this illustration, with this parable about two people who who build their house. And and everything about these things, everything that he has said, he closes with this and he compares these two houses and one being built on the rock and one being built on the sand. And on the outside, as he's telling the parable, there's nothing that would distinguish those two houses except the foundation on which they're built. According to Jesus, the way he even words it and says the the exact same way about each one, we can assume that he is saying there's nothing to distinguish them from one another on the outside. But the wise man builds on a strong foundation while the foolish man builds on sand. And so that is part of this idea of building on the sand can look good. It can last for a while. But what he says is everything looks great until the storms come. But when the storms come, and they will come, the house on the sand will be destroyed. And so what we see in this parable is really quite simple. Jesus offers an assessment, asking the question of which house are you building? Which foundation are you building upon? And then he gives a warning for those who would build on the foundation of sand. And then he gives a promise for those who build on the rock. So he gives an assessment. It's kind of like a, like a home inspection. Come in and look at it and say, okay, this is the condition of your foundation. This is, this is what you've built your house on. And that is the key question. Where are you building your house? And how do you know? Because remember, we've had these passages where Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Just because you say that Jesus is Lord 
And even just because you do things that look religious or look big in the kingdom, it doesn't mean that you actually are known by him. And so he gives an assessment here as well. He says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So they both hear his words. And they may even be in agreement with his words. But one does them and the other doesn't. And that's the difference. One does them and the other doesn't. See, it's not about showing up and listening to him. As we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount and all the messages that you've heard, if you've read through this, my prayers that you've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just about reading the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just about listening to sermons about it. It's not just about taking notes. It's not just about nodding in agreement that it's better to love our enemies. It's about doing it. Well, why? Doesn't that kind of start to get confusing when we believe we're saved by faith, but you're saying it matters what we do? Well, I think D.A. Carson, theologian, says it really well, and he says this. He says, entrance into the kingdom does turn on obedience after all. Not the obedience which earns merit points, but which bows to Jesus' lordship in everything without reservation. So what we see is that the obedience that Jesus is talking about, the, the doing the, the will of the Father by obeying his word, it's not the, the obedience that gains merit points where God says, okay, you've obeyed me well enough, now I let you into the kingdom. No, in fact, it's the reverse of that. It is the obedience that demonstrates that my life is in complete submission to Jesus as Lord. Because as we say so often, what you do reveals what you actually believe. And it's a huge obstacle in our culture. Like we live in a culture that thinks that you are what you say you are, that making stands and saying the right things, that that's what matters, giving the right answers reaching the right conclusions of thought, that that's what matters. And as long as we agree on those things, then we're on the same page. But Jesus says, no. We know we are on the same page when we are bowing to the lordship of Jesus. And you say, well, how, how do I know? Because when we'll get to this, none of us are going to do that perfectly. None of us are going to be like completely above reproach. We're going to battle every day. And we've talked about even the fact that you are battling is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. So, so how do you know? And I want to just give you this one test that's been really helpful to me over the years. Because over the years, um, I, I would look at this, and I think I did what maybe a, a lot of people do, which is I try to assess whether I'm submitting to the lordship of Jesus in the ways that I already was wired to agree with him. 
So in the ways that already I was wired with a predisposition to go along with what he said, and I just found like, okay, what I was really asking was, well, am I in agreement with Jesus? But I found that that's kind of like taking a test. Like I remember in seminary, um, my Old Testament professor one semester let us write our own test. Guess what? I got an A. Like he said, you write this way. And the, and the idea of the exercise was you tell me what you think are the most important things to know. And guess what? The things I thought that were the most important things to know were the things that I knew. And the things I didn't know, I didn't think were very important. And we get into that where we hear the words of Jesus, we read scripture, and what jumps out to us that's most important are the things that we already know, that we already agree with, that we're already in line with. And then we assess ourselves based off of that and say, yes, I'm building my house on the rock. But I would submit that when I find myself just in immediate agreement with Jesus, That's not actually submission. And the better test is to ask, what happens when you disagree with the Holy Spirit? What happens when you read something in God's word that pushes against what you want, what you desire, what you think, what you've always held? What happens when you desire or want to go down a road, but you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit that maybe, maybe that's not the road you should go down? What happens when you're set in your ways and godly people who love you and are following Jesus gently come to you and ask, do you think this is the way that God has for you? What happens then? My question would be, do you have examples when you have submitted to Jesus when at first you did not want to? When at first you were set in a different direction? Or do you find yourself saying, well, I feel like I'm always in agreement? Like a quick tip is, if you find that you are always in agreement with the Holy Spirit, then it is not the Holy Spirit you're listening to. No one in scriptures agrees with Jesus all the time. No one. We said before that if Jesus was here in the flesh and we got to follow him around for 24 hours, I guarantee you that every single one of us would feel super uncomfortable and have a moment where we would say to Jesus, are you sure about this? This doesn't seem right. Every single one of us. Because he is Jesus. And we are not. And so that is where the rubber meets the road. When you have those moments where you say, I, I, don't, I don't know, this seems right to me, but I'm reading this, and I, I, this is what I'm feeling conviction over. What do you do? Do you defend and manipulate and justify and distract and deflect? 
or do you submit? And sometimes, by the way, submission just looks like, okay, Lord, I'm willing to ask the question, search me. Just, and, and willing to ask others questions and say, hey, can you help me understand this? I just did this. I, I read an article this week that felt really like, I was like, ah, I don't know. And it was someone that I normally agree with and I really struggled with this. And I sent it to a dear friend and I said, hey, could you just read this and just give me your thoughts? Didn't want to feed it with any of my thoughts. But what I was going through was I was feeling some pushback in this and I was thinking like, man, I don't agree with that, but, but am I right in that? Am I not? Like, I don't know. And so like I'm seeking counsel in that and praying and asking the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I feel uncomfortable with this. I don't know what to do with it. Like, show me. That's the process of submitting. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, is there anyone here who does not struggle with anger or bitterness or with pride and envy or with judgment towards others or with forgiveness? When you hit that crossroads, which will you do? The man who hears the word about forgiveness and just nods and says, yeah, that's a good thing to do, and I'm happy to forgive people when they deserve it, is the man who builds his house on the sand. And when storms come, and they will come, it will fall. And that's his warning. So he gives the assessment, and then he gives the warning that if you are building on the sand, the storms will come, and it will fall. The temporary treasures of the world will fade away with the economy. The temporary satisfaction of unforgiveness and seeking justice will fade into crippling bitterness. Because your kingdom and my kingdom cannot survive because we are not worthy to be kings. I mean, how many times have you put your hope in something that has let you down? A new purchase that ended up being a a liability and a chain as you try to pay off debt. A relationship that you pursued apart from God that has left pain in its wake. An escape to a, a different job only to experience the same problems. That's building on the sand and for a while it can hold together. As long as everything is great, as long as the circumstances are fine, then it's okay. Maxing out your finances is okay until the car breaks down or someone gets sick or you lose your job. This is the way that it goes, but storms do hit and they are out of our control. And this is not a harsh statement from Jesus. It is a loving warning. Imagine a friend building their house. So the, the, since now I've been here long enough to see the bay come up close and the bay like way out. I think when I first moved here, it was like seven miles away from houses or something. I don't know. It's like you could, you, you know, you could camp out there or whatever. Imagine if it's in that season and somebody moves in and says, well, I really want to be close to the water because it's pretty. And so they build way out there. And imagine that you're looking at that going, holy cow, like in a year, that's going to be completely flooded. What would you do? Their friend, what would you do? Would you say like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to sound judgmental. I don't want to, 
I don't want to upset them. I don't want them to think that I'm being harsh. No, we can see that it would be unloving to not give a warning. And so he gives the warning. If you're building on sand and rejecting him, it's going to fall. Both here on earth, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day, but also in eternity, we are separated from him forever. And by the way, the biggest danger in that warning is, is not actually outright rejection. As he's already said multiple times in this, that it's, it's, it's one thing for a person to just be overtly just saying like, hey, like maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, right, and I just don't believe. I'm still in a place where I don't believe and I'm just, I'm glad you're here and you are seeking. And I would actually say, you are in a safer place than the one who is deceived. The person that we talked about last week who will say, I did all these things, I called you Lord, but is missing Jesus, doesn't know him. The person who is trying to have a foot in both worlds. The person who builds part of his house on the sand and part of it on the rock and tries to live in both. And we see it all over the spectrum today in our culture. We see how some try to fit God into their own thoughts about morality and goodness, and it kind of gets morphed into kind of a humanistic idea of like libertarian humanism, where we're just like, you know, just hey, let everybody, everybody should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as I agree with what they want to do. And then we form that and we say, and we say like, well, we're going to start denying the presence of sin and just start calling it like, well, it's just mistakes. And yeah, we're not perfect, but we just we start to minimize all of that, thus denying the need of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And so it's no secret that as the, the depth of depravity of man is downplayed because it just sounds so gross, so does the depth of the power and the extent of the power of the cross because... We don't really need a big cross to forgive us for just little mistakes. And so we're left in that end with a powerless, feel-good religion. And Jesus says you can't build on both. But then we see it on the other side, where those say, like, right, that's why we have to be really strong and really clear about all the sin that's in the world and tell everybody how that is the big problem and denying then the life of Christ. They're all about truth, but cannot handle denying themselves and dying to themselves. So they essentially tell Jesus, Jesus, I agree with your platform. I want to form an alliance with you and your kingdom, but I'm not giving up my own. So I know and I respect that you say to turn the other cheek, and I will to an extent, but I will not be a doormat. Or I know that you say that the world will hate me and I'm okay with that, but I will not be seen as a fool. Or I know that you say that I'll need to lay down my life and I will give up some things, but I will not lay down my rights. You cannot build on both foundations. But maybe even most common of the two worlds is when we just don't want to think much about it at all. We just are like, yep, I like to stay out of all that. I'm not going to go to any kind of extremes. I'm just going to live my life, go to church, sprinkle a little Jesus on some things, and I'm be good to go. Feel good about some of the steps that we're taking, 
But ultimately, I'm really living for my own kingdom. I'm just quieter about it. I don't post on Facebook about it. Don't make big stands. Don't push one way or the other. I'm good. Just kind of living in my own world. And I'll just put some Christian labels on it. And that'll be it. And the warning is you cannot build on two foundations. There is no halfway. Build your house on the rock. Jesus has said this. You cannot serve God and mammon cannot serve two masters. There is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. There is a rock and there is sand. It is all or it is nothing. It is life or it is death. And so the warning of Jesus is simple. If you build your house on the sand, it will fall now and for eternity. But he gives a promise that there is a foundation on which you can build, that when the storms come, your house will stand. It is the way everlasting. But as he says, few will find it. To enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is one of the great tensions we have in Christianity. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then he says, but narrow is the gate and the way is hard. And sometimes I want to look at Jesus and I want to say, hey, which one? And I just imagine him looking at me gently and directly and saying, yes, both. The rock is harder to build on at first. The gate is narrow. I mean, if this way is so great, then why is it so hard to find? Why is this the case? And here's, here's why. I don't expect you to, to believe me, depending on where you are in your journey, I don't expect that you're going to accept this answer at all, but I just... But it, it is the answer that scripture gives. The reason why the gate is narrow, the reason why it seems hard to us is because it pushes against our flesh. Because we have to die to ourselves to receive the light and easy yoke. And we don't want to die to ourselves. We don't want to give it up. At first, it doesn't seem to make sense. It pushes against the way that, that the world works. Like, how can loving my enemies and turning the other cheek be the path to justice? Right? How can giving away my money make me rich? How can not seeking the praises of men lead to better rewards and recognition? How can losing my life lead to finding it? How can denying myself lead to every desire being fulfilled? How can giving up control lead to more peace? And some of you may be sitting here listening to all that right there and say, right, that's why I think all this is a bunch of hooey. By the way, if that is you, well done on the word hooey. It's underutilized, I feel. But if that's you, I understand. And I get it. 
But let me ask you this. What if the problem isn't those things, but our vision and our ability to see? What if something is clouding our vision? What if something is clouding our minds? That is what sin does. And that's why sin is so much more nefarious and so much darker than any of the behaviors that we often attach to it because it infects everything at its root. It's not just a bad apple that grows on the edge of a tree. It is a diseased tree that infects everything, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we process, the narratives we build in our heads. Sin perverts and blinds and confuses. And I thought and thought and thought about an illustration. And here's, here's the one that I came up with. If anyone in here who has struggled with addiction or has loved someone who has struggled with addiction and you watch them choose a path over and over and over again that leads to destruction... And they continue to choose it because it seems best to them. Because they don't see clearly. They don't see that what they're chasing is actually not better. They don't see that there is a better way because that is what makes sense to them. That is what they know. That is what they're compelled by. And so they pursue that. And what the Bible says essentially when it comes to sin is that we are all addicts. We are addicted to sin. The rush it gives us, the power it gives us, because when we are in sin, we are functioning as our own gods. It is an illusion to be sure, but it still feels good to think we know everything, to think we can understand everything, to think we can control our circumstances to just give in and do whatever we think is best, whatever we think is right, whatever our flesh desires, to say that thing, to think that thing, to do that thing, and to say, nobody can judge me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It's a drug, and it's addictive, and we cannot resist it in our own strength. We are powerless. But if you have seen that in addiction in someone's life, or if you've battled it, you know that there are moments of clarity, moments where the addict will realize it's, it's, this isn't actually working out the way that I thought it would. Moments, whether it's called rock bottom or just moments of enlightenment where you just say, like, I don't think this is actually working. I don't think that this thing, but I can't resist it. And moments where you desperately want to be free. And Jesus gives us those moments. Even with the challenging sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, deep down, there's a moment of clarity where we say, I see what you're saying. Because let me ask you, when have you felt more at peace than when you have given up controlling things? When have you felt more free from bitterness than when you have truly forgiven? When have you felt more joy in good works than when you didn't need to be recognized? When have you felt more free to love people than when you stop worrying about protecting and portraying a certain image about yourself? 
Do we know that? We see it. And like with a recovering addict, we say like, when have you felt more free than when you are sober and when you're away from that? Like, don't you feel more like yourself? And there are these moments, and it's as, almost as if Jesus knows what he's talking about. Right? Like, it's almost as if he teaches with authority that they had never heard before. And you get a glimpse of freedom, and that's what Jesus is offering. We are addicted to sin, to be enslaved by sin, but Jesus has come to set us free. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So that's you. Whether you've been a Christian forever and you realize you've still been walking in slavery and not in freedom, that you continue to give yourself over to that addiction, or if you have spent your life rejecting him, confess Jesus as Lord. Be set free. Confess that you've been living for your own kingdom. You've been building your house on the sand. I don't care how big that house on the sand is. It is worth it. Scrap it all. And build your house on the rock. When you do, you receive his righteousness. Because the reason that the house stands against the storm is not because of how good of a builder you are. It's by how strong of a foundation he is. You can have a cheap Walmart nylon tent out there. And that foundation is going to hold we receive his righteousness. The life of Christ is yours and you are made new. And the promise is if you build on that foundation, on Jesus, if you give yourself completely to the kingdom, to following him, when the storms come, and they will come, your house will stand. Not because you built it properly, but because the foundation is secure. Whatever comes, you will stand. Cancer Betrayal, poverty, injustice, you'll be free from worry, free from pursuing earthly words and the rewards, and the final storm of death will not be able to destroy you. You will be free from death's sting. And the rest of your life is learning to walk in that new identity he's given you. Like this is where just get so confused sometimes. We think like what I need to do is I need to do good things so God will accept me back. And that's not what he's doing. Again, read the prodigal son in Luke 15. Read it and read it and read it and see that what God is doing is saying, come to me. I have a life of freedom for you. Don't return to the yoke of slavery. As Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't turn back to that. In other words, he sets you free to walk in freedom. And it's messy. So I just want to finish with this, that, that none of us have this figured out. We're all messy. It's in the wrestling 
It's in the searching, it's the acting out in the faith, the falling, the repentance, the receiving of grace, in all of those ways that we are sanctified and that we learn more and more. But the, the reality of the Christian doctrine and what we believe is that in repentance and through faith, Christ saves us. And he gives us a new identity and says, this is who you are. And then the rest of our life is spent acting in faith that we really are who he says we are. Does that make sense? It's not the rest of our life is spent trying to earn what he's given us or trying to prove to God that he made the right choice by doing that. It is us learning to walk as the new creature that we really are. To take each step by faith. Remember, I don't know if it was last week or a couple weeks ago, I compared us to two-year-olds or a few weeks. I don't know. I feel like I've done it a lot lately. So um, hopefully then it just becomes more normal. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we're two-year-olds. Okay, got it. But like that idea of like, you know, we think of our heavenly father, and, but we like to think of ourselves as grown adult children. Like, okay, but I, yeah, he's my father, but I'm like a, a son that pretty much has it figured out and probably could give him a few tips also. But when re- reality, we're like an 18-month-old, or 12-month-old. Like we really don't have anything to offer at all. It's just grace upon grace that he gives us. That's more the relationship. And it is like that when we're learning to walk. We're walking in this identity. We're, we're a baby who is learning to walk. You think about babies. We have several babies in here. This has like been a boon of babies lately. And it's awesome when they start to learn to walk. And because I'm old now, I don't have any idea what age they start to walk. Like five? I don't know. Like what... <laughs> Like, once they get past it, I'm like, when I'm in it, you're like, oh, no, that's like 84 weeks. And you're like, I don't know now. Like, I have no idea. Um, but whenever babies learn to walk, like, you think about, like, how they pull themselves up on furniture. You know, they'll lift themselves up. And what do they always do when they lift themselves up? Big smile. Big proud. Big proud moment. Look at me. And then what do they do? Well, I, gotta, I don't need this thing anymore. Phew. And then what happens? Smack. Crying tears and you have to go pick him up and that's how we are so often like we we follow Jesus and we have these moments and we think like okay I'm going to follow you yes I'm going to do it and and we do it we act in faith and we forgive someone or we share the gospel with somebody or we pray with somebody we we're like we're holding up we're going like I did it and then we're like great and then we walk away and then boom fall on our face and then the enemy comes in and says see you're a failure why did you ever think that you could do? Why did you ever think you could walk like that? You can't do that. But Jesus comes and picks us up. He sets us back. And what do we do when you have a baby and you're trying to get them to walk to you across the room? You say, "Hey, look at me. Hey, come to me." And we look at him and we go and the encouragement is just, just come and take this step. And for a baby, it seems like it's a mile away. It seems like there's no way we can get there. But the, the act of faith is take this step. Well, what about 12 steps down the road? Like, what if I'm going to tire out? It Just take this step. Look at him and take this step. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at him and take that step. Don't worry about 10 steps down the road. Take this step. What if they think I'm weird if I invite them to church? What if it makes things weird? Just take the step. What if I don't understand something in scripture when I'm trying to read it? Just take the step. Well, what if, what if I end up saying the wrong thing to this person when I'm trying to comfort them? Just take the step. Look at him and take the step. That's why we fix our eyes on him and not principles and concepts. Because every time we narrow it down to principles, those are things we can master. I can master a principle and a method. I cannot master Jesus. So look at him and take the next step. Listen to his words and look at him and take that step. So maybe you're thinking back over the Sermon on the Mount. This would be my encouragement. Read the Sermon on the Mount again. Look back over and ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And maybe you already know. Maybe it's your understanding of how the kingdom functions and you need to repent and receive what he means when he says the meek will inherit the earth. Or maybe it's what you read as he, what he says about anger or about lust. And you realize that you've just been trying to fix yourself or you've been excusing it or minimizing it. And this is the time to repent and take a step and follow him. Or maybe it's in the rewards you're seeking or trying to control situations in order to receive the praises of men or to be thought of well by others. And rather than doing all of that, saying, I'm going to give up all that. I'm just going to please my father. Just look at him and take that step. Or maybe it's about worry. And the next time you feel that, you're just going to look at him and take the step. Don't worry about 12 steps down the road. Just take that step. Or maybe it's the treasures that you seek. And so the baby step is just to start giving. You say, well, what if I lose hours at work? What if this doesn't work out the way that I want it to? Or I think that my plan um, doesn't work out the way that I want it to. Like maybe just, just look at him, hear his words, and take that step. Or maybe it's your attitude towards others and you've been convicted that you felt been judgmental and now you see the log in your own eye and you think like how do I undo all that and what if I confess to this person and they think that means I condone everything like what if and he says just just take that step what if I mess up you will you have I will I have and we are toddlers learning to walk and his heart towards you in those steps Imagine as that toddler, that five-year-old, six-month-old, three-day-old, whatever, is walking across the room, and they fall. How many of you, when you see that baby fall, go, knew you couldn't do it. Look at you. Look at me. I can walk. Oh, yeah, I walked from this couch, and I walked over here to this couch. Like, what's wrong with you? Actually, there's probably a couple of you in here who are like, that's, a, that's hilarious. I'm doing that. I'm totally doing that. You can put it on TikTok. Great. But you don't do that, do you? And neither does your father. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't looking at me like, I walked that road fine. What's wrong with you? He picks you up. He loves you. 
He's pleased with you. He looks at you, just, he looks at you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Can you even fathom that God looks at you and me in our mess and he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? He isn't fed up with you. He isn't sick of you. He isn't wondering why he ever saved you in the first place. He just wants you to look at him and take the next step. This is what Paul experienced when he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He has made you his own. If you have professed faith in him and declared and repented of your sin and put your trust in him and forsaken your kingdom and said, I want your kingdom, then he has made you his own. So forget what lies behind and press on and lay hold of that which he has already given to you. Build your house on the rock. And when the storms come, and they will come, your house will stand for his glory and your joy forever. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We desire you, and yet we find our hearts straying and fading and desiring other things. Lord, let us this morning receive an assessment from the Holy Spirit and listen and to ask ourselves, are we building on the rock? Is there a battle within us and conviction? What do we do when we hear that voice that is convicting? Not the voice that shames and lies and accuses, but the voice that convicts and with kindness leads to repentance. Lord, let us choose that narrow gate. Let us choose to build that house on the foundation of the rock. Let us heed your warning and let us receive the promise you have secured our foundation. You have secured our identity. You have secured our life. Let us look to you and take the next step. In Jesus' name, amen.